Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Can you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to The Lock-In, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have two. We're locked in today with a man who's up there with John Flamsteed, Edmund Hawley and Frank Dyson, the man who invented the Pips time signal. I'm talking about Martin, Lord Rees, who, like the others, is Astronomer Royal. As well as being the nation's foremost astrophysicist or stargazer, He's also one of the founders of the Cambridge Centre for the Study of Existential Risk, which is what we're going to talk about. In short, are we all doomed? Martin, how has your, uh, your lockdown been? Um, it's been um, guiltily comfortable, as it were, because I've been in Cambridge in quite a nice house and I've been able to uh, do lots of Zooming and uh, um, giving lectures all over the world, indeed, not just to North America and Europe, where I fly often, but to places I wouldn't uh, so readily fly to, you know, Latin America, lots to India and things like that. So I've been fairly productive in a sense in lockdown and got some writing done as well. But it's been really bad for the students here at Cambridge University. Because they, they're deprived of one-to-one -one contact. Yes, well, there has been some sort of tutorial one-to-one. The big lectures are now video, but that doesn't matter too much. But they've been deprived of normal student life, really. Big gatherings and informal uh, social events, etc. And uh, to be fair, they've done much better in Cambridge than in many other universities. I mean, if you read about what happened at uh, Northumbria and Manchester, it was really dreadful. Has it made you think more about existential risk? Well, I think um, uh, I've been concerned about this for a long time, but I think uh, the pandemic has made the public realize that it's not just uh, flaky doom mongers who worry about these global catastrophes, but they really happen. And so we are moving into a world where we are so interconnected, uh, so dependent on technology, uh, that we are more vulnerable than before. And so I think uh, uh, COVID is an example of uh, 
uh, a globe-spanning catastrophe. And it makes us worry that things like this could happen. We can imagine things potentially far worse than COVID with a much higher fatality rate, for instance. And I think it's become a serious issue. We've realized that these disasters can spread globally in a way that could never happen before. I know you're a scientist and prefer evidence to anything else, but if you had to take a bet, bet mortgage your house, if you had to bet your house on whether mm. this was a naturally occurring thing or something that was man-made, what would you decide? Um, I think, to be honest, uh, I would say it's more likely to be a, a natural event in that it was transmitted from animals via the uh, food markets in China, etc. But it's not at all implausible to say that it did leak out from the Wuhan uh, laboratory where they were doing experiments of this kind. Um, so that's a possibility. But uh, one of my worst nightmares is that the kind of technology to make viruses more virulent and more transmissible, uh, which uh, was available for the influenza virus 10 years ago, is now becoming more feasible for other viruses and more widespread. And my worst nightmare is that uh, there could be um, intentionally engineered releases of viruses, um, which uh, could happen anywhere. And it's very, very hard to regulate against that because it's not like uh, regulating people who might build a nuclear weapon because that needs large special purpose facilities. Um, doing these experiments on viruses um, can be done in the kind of labs that exist in many universities and many industries. And I really worry about the greater likelihood, increasing likelihood of uh, bad actors, as it were, fanatics of various kinds who may uh, release a bio weapon. And also, of course, the same concern about cyber attacks, which are getting uh, more mysterious. And I think globally, in order to cope with this threat where the village idiots of the world have global range. Um, we're going to have a very difficult trade-off between three things we want to preserve, namely um, liberty, uh, privacy, and security. Because we can't afford even one person to be able to uh, clandestinely do this sort of thing. That is terrifying. I think it is. So that's the sort of thing that keeps you awake at night, is it? That's the thing that worries me most, actually, yes. Um, the, the fact that individuals are empowered by bio and cyber technology uh, to do things which could even cascade globally and certainly have uh, local catastrophic effects. Um, and I think um, if you think about bio, of course, um, bioweapons haven't been used very much in war and they wouldn't be used by a terrorist group with well-defined aims simply because the consequences are yeah, unpredictable. Um, but but there are uh, there are a few people, for instance, environmental fanatics who think there are too many human beings in the world. And if that was combined with uh, uh, this this sort of fanaticism, uh, they would not care who they killed. What are we to do about it? Well, as I say, it's a trade-off between privacy, liberty, and security. Uh, we can um, obviously do what we can to uh, monitor um, all these labs and the people who have access to them. Um, and also, uh, we can make sure that certain types of experiment 
um, are um, uh, prohibited in uh, organized laboratories to try and slow down certain technologies, but that's pretty ineffective. So uh, it's honestly something which I don't see an easy solution to. That makes it much, much more difficult. That's right. If it were easy, of course, someone would have had an answer, wouldn't they? That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you are looking at active threats. Uh, well, I mean, uh, of course, um, the engineered threats are an add-on to the kind of uh, natural pandemics which we are experiencing now and which, of course, uh, have happened not all that rarely. And indeed, I like the maxim of um, uh, Nate Silver that the unfamiliar is not the same as the improbable. And uh, uh, these pandemics are unfamiliar, but no one could have said it was terribly improbable given that there have been SARS and MERS and there have been influenza pandemics. And of course, we could have something far worse. The nightmare would be something with a very high fatality rate, uh, which could spread. Um, and uh, I think another point to bear in mind is that um, social breakdown would occur uh, if hospitals were completely overwhelmed. It's, you can make a contrast with the Middle Ages when of course they had bubonic plague, which killed up to half the population in some towns and villages, but the rest just went on fatalistically. Uh, but now, I think if the death rate exceeded 1% of the population, it would be hard to avoid real social breakdown because that would much overwhelm the capacity of hospitals and um, uh, everyone would clamor for the uh, treatment which they knew was available, which they weren't themselves getting. And I think that's the kind of thing that I, I worry about. People would fight to be treated, you mean? I think they would, don't you? That if, if, if things um, uh, got, got that bad. Um, and um, of course, in, in uh, this country and in North America, the figures about 0.3% who have died of this. And uh, one fears in Brazil, it may be uh, closer to 1%. And we see what's happening there. So I, I think this is a real concern. And of course, um, to, to inject a little bit of uh, um, optimism, um, one thing that should be done clearly is to um, uh, increase the effort of the WHO in trying to uh, uh, catch a new virus before it spreads. I mean, uh, to make sure that any uh, farmer in Vietnam reports any strange disease in his animals and obviously shut down these uh, so-called wet markets in China and all that. So we can, with greater efforts, uh, uh, try to um, reduce the probability of these outbreaks. And that's clearly worthwhile. And the other thing we learned certainly from this uh, uh, pandemic is that it would have been worth spending a great deal more money on preparedness because uh, the figure that's quoted for the uh, cost to the world of this pandemic in the next few years is 20 or 30 trillion dollars. And in that perspective, given that it wasn't hugely unlikely, an insurance premium at several hundred million dollars, several hundred billion dollars would have been worthwhile. And of course, far less than that was spent. Otherwise, we'd have had protective clothing and all these things and uh, uh, accelerated even further uh, the development of, uh, uh, of um, vaccine technology, etc. But the WHO, which is 
the only organization you can you can point to there the mm. who has shown itself to be useless hasn't it um, well it's so, uh, suboptimal but given its limited resources um i wouldn't i, I wouldn't uh, deride it and uh, i think we've got to work with it and uh, for trump to withdraw from it uh, was it, indeed surely counterproductive. We've got to work with it and extend it so that it is able to actually uh, uh, respond immediately and, and monitor any possible outbreak. Um, clearly, it could have done far better, but uh, I think we should not uh, um, disparage it. It's the best we've got. It's the only thing we've got. Yep. Mm. Well, that's not very encouraging, is it? No. We've got to hope it's going to improve, but uh, um, this is uh, a real challenge, and we just have to hope uh, that um, the, the politicians can at least agree on um, funding in a much bigger way uh, these types of activities of the WHO, um, uh, supplementing what's done by national authorities. Do you worry about artificial intelligence? Um, I do, but not quite so much. I mean, of course, uh, the, the two separate issues. One is that uh, uh, the kind of AI we have now um, uh, can be misused because it learns on uh, big training sets and uh, it absorbs the biases implicit in those sets. For instance, if you use it to uh, um, sift out the um, uh, a short list from thousands of applicants for a job, uh, then it looks at what's happened in the past and there have been all kinds of biases obviously in the past and it incorporates those so it's very hard to uh, eliminate biases and i think many of us are going to be reluctant to feel that any decision important to us uh, be it um, whether we are um, uh, let out of prison um, uh, recommended for surgery or um, even denied credit uh, should be made to by machine, because we feel that we are entitled to uh, contest any such decision. And uh, if we can't do that, we are unhappy, even if we are told that on the whole, the machine does a better job than any human. Um, we still feel that it could have hidden bugs in it, and so we don't want to leave decisions to it. And there's another problem, which is that machines learn by um, looking at very large data sets or thinking very fast, for instance, the um, machine that beat the world champion at chess and go, it played against itself. It can play several games per second, and that's how it can learn very fast. And it can look at um, um, millions of images of dogs and cats and things to learn to recognize them. And of course, uh, um, it learns to translate by looking at um, millions of pages of say EU documents in different languages because it's boredom threshold is fortunately infinite. And so uh, it can learn that way, but what it can't learn is common sense, because that can only be learned by looking at real people in real environments. And uh, for the machine to do that, first, it needs better sense organs, but secondly, it's too slow. It's like us watching trees grow, it's too slow for us to learn. And so that's the big problem to, to learn common sense. So this is a short term issue, but uh, if we go to the longer term, of course, there are people who say that the um, machines will um, uh, achieve um, human capability in more areas. And then there's a risk that they will, as it were, get out of their box, um, interact with the Internet of Things and actually cause massive disruption, um, uh, aiming at goals which are um, 
possibly idiotic, but certainly misaligned with what uh, human wishes are. So that is uh, something which is worried about. Um, I, I, th I think this is um, not an immediate worry. Um, some people think this is something which could happen in 20 years time. There's a guy called Ray Kurzweil who works for Google, who thinks we'll be downloading our brains into machines like that. But I'm more on the side of uh, another expert, Rodney Brooks, the inventor of the Baxter robot and the Roomba vacuum cleaner. And he says that for a long time, we need to worry far less about artificial intelligence than about real stupidity. So that's my line. When you say real stupidity, what do you mean? Well, I mean, human, just human stupidity as we have always- Humans will do something about. silly. Yeah, yes. Tell me about your bet with Steven Pinker. Yes, well, Stephen, Stephen is a friend, and of course, uh, um, he is um, a uh, great optimist. He, he's a wonderful writer, and uh, he wrote a book uh, uh, four years ago called The Better Angels of Our Nature, uh, which uh, um, gave lots of statistics on the way things improved. Um, you know, life expectancy, um, literacy, and all these things are improving, and this is true. Um, and I, I'm not contesting that, but he somehow doesn't take into account that there's this new class of concerns, um, which uh, are in a sense, a consequence of the um, advancement of our civilization and its greater internationalization, uh, which uh, um, are things like cyber, bio and all these things I worry about. He, in my view, underplays all of those. And uh, we disagree on this. And we, we did have a bet, there's a website in America called long bets, which allows people to make public bets on issues like that. And um, uh, we had a bet. And it was that by the end of 2020, um, bio error or bio terror would lead to a million deaths. And uh, uh, I, I said it would, and he said it wouldn't. Now, of course, what actually happened has slightly um, complicated how we interpret the bet, because uh, clearly we've had an event which is um, far worse than uh, um, that threshold of a million deaths and uh, something which Stephen obviously never expected. So uh, we've got something bad. But of course, um, I put in the proviso in the bet that it should be bio-error and bio-terror and not natural. And there again, of course, as we said earlier, um, it's unclear. It's possible it was a, uh, an error, a leakage from a lab, um, but uh, that's not likely, and so we've decided to suspend how we decided that. In a sense, we've both lost because uh, uh, neither of us expected such a bad pandemic, uh, whereas I was perhaps more prepared for it than he was because uh, um, he was so optimistic about the future. Um, so the, the uh, question of whether it actually did escape from the um, uh, Wuhan uh, laboratory um, is something which we don't know, and frankly, um, as we say in a joint article we wrote recently, it might be better if we never know, because of course, um, if it were definitely proved that some kind of negligence um, in that Chinese lab had caused this global catastrophe, um, then of course, uh, the story would have a real villain. And given the attitudes, particularly in the US, uh, this would certainly have a major effect on international relations. So I think it's probably better if we never know, we can never settle this bet. But we never will know, will we? Um, Chinese are going to deny it. 
Well, uh, probably not. I mean, I, I think in principle we might we might discover it. For instance, uh, we did discover that a uh, um, foot and mouth epidemic in ninety in twenty oh seven in this country was due to leakage from the perbride lab. Uh, we did do, do that, but uh, um, I think you know, given the sensitivity of the Chinese, I don't think we will ever know. Um, it, it would take a long time anyway. And it's you've good been, to be done. I think. You've been using terms like optimism. Are you an optimist? Well, I like to say I'm a technological optimist and a political pessimist, because um, the fact is that we couldn't feed the present world population of 7.8 billion were it not for technology, um, growing more food and all, all the rest. So, so clearly um, uh, we can benefit and we could benefit a great deal more because even presently understood technology would allow us to provide um, a good life um, like we enjoy for everyone in the world. But it clearly isn't because of the massive inequalities within countries and between countries. So I, I'm an optimist of what technology can do, but a pessimist about the growing gap between what could be done and what is being done. And this is where I disagree in my sort of philosophy with Steven Pinker, because uh, um, he quite rightly points out that everyone is better off now on average than people were in the Middle Ages. That's certainly true. However, the gap between the way things are and the way they could be was not very great in the Middle Ages. There wasn't very much they could do to improve things. Whereas now we are indeed better off, but uh, the gap between the way we actually are in the world today and the way we could be is widening. There's a huge gap. And so I disagree with him in that there's not much evidence in sort of collective ethical progress. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Are there others in the world who are studying the same sort of things and coming to different conclusions? Conclusions which could lead you to be optimistic? Um, I think 
I think there's some, but, but um, uh, my, I think our main point, and that's why we've set up a research group in Cambridge um, to address these sorts of uh, issues more, more seriously and draw on the convening power of our university, et cetera, to bring expertise to bear. Um, th there is somewhat more interest in these things, but still disproportionately small amount because there's a huge amount of interest in small risks like reducing carcinogens in food, train crashes and things like that. But the, probably in the world, well, probably now 100 or 200 people who are seriously thinking about how we can minimize these kinds of uh, uh, global um, catastrophes, which um, are unfamiliar, but not necessarily improbable. Um, and I think COVID is, is a wake-up call. I mean, in, in this um, uh, country, um, there's certainly growing interest in our work, um, in government, etc. Um, and in fact, um, one thing I've been involved in is um, uh, um, a House of Lords Special Select Committee uh, addressing this issue, which has actually um, done quite a serious job. We've had um, um, 20 all-morning sessions of uh, evidence with all kinds of experts, um, and uh, we're doing a report. So that's a small contribution, uh, indicating that the government is taking these these things uh, seriously. Um, but um, uh, a short answer to your question is that um, we need to worry more uh, because uh, it's worth paying a big insurance premium, as it were, to enhance preparedness for events that may seem improbable, which will be so utterly catastrophic if they occurred. Are you able to itemize what paying that bill would involve? Well, of course, that's hard because um, uh, um, we mustn't just prepare for a, the last war, as it were, to prepare for a repeat. And uh, to give an example, um, we were prepared for an influenza pandemic because we'd had one in this country, um, but we weren't prepared for the special features of a coronavirus type pandemic, which required um, protective equipment for everyone involved um, and also uh, was um, difficult to uh, uh, develop a vaccine against, etc. So we weren't prepared. And uh, I think if we consider all the different kinds of diseases that could happen, if we consider uh, the consequences of, uh, of cyber attacks, uh, then I think what we can do is just um, um, generate robustness, etc. One thing we can do generically, I think, is to um, uh, shift the balance between what I'd call resilience and efficiency. Two examples, um, uh, if we depend on a single supply chain and just-in-time delivery for manufacturing cars or something, then of course that's vulnerable to uh, the breakdown of one link in that chain. And it's far better to have multiple supply chains and keep an inventory in stock. That uh, costs extra money, but it's worth it. And likewise, um, I think the German uh, health service, unlike the British one, had a policy of keeping um, at least 20% of intensive care beds empty, except for a special emergency. Whereas here, we pride ourselves on the great efficiency of using all the beds. So those are two examples where um, one can uh, uh, enhance resilience um, at the uh, price of paying a bit extra for the services. So that's the kind of thing we, we can do, which is a generic 
benefit. But of course, um, uh, if you take cyber, um, this is a very serious threat if there is, for instance, a breakdown in electricity grid, because um, it's not just the lights going out, it's the loss of all electronic communications and the internet and everything else. And just think how much worse this last pandemic would have been if we'd lost the internet, doing what we're doing now. Yes. Um, that's, that's really, really serious. Um, and um, uh, in fact, I, I quote in my book on the future, um, a report back in 2012 um, by the US Defense Department, where they contemplate a cyber attack on the electricity grid on the east coast of the United States. And they say, that's so serious, it would merit a nuclear response. And what's very scary is that that sort of cyber attack, which may have needed a state level effort, uh, then could now have to be done by a small group aided by AI, because AI um, aids the cyber attackers. And there's an arms race between the cyber attackers and cybersecurity people. It's not clear which side is winning. So I think cyber attacks um, on uh, basic infrastructure, are, as we are, we're seeing, they're, they're pretty common and uh, they could be in some cases catastrophic. Lord Rees, do you think that we've emerged from this health emergency with a better understanding of risk? Um, uh, yes, certainly. I think uh, with an awareness that we need to take things seriously and um, uh, many uh, scenarios which would have been unlikely or impossible in the past are now becoming more likely because of advancing technology which can be misused and of course because of the greater interconnectedness of our world uh, so we do depend on uh, global communications etc and uh, global um, supply chains so i, I think um, it, the probability of various classes of catastrophes is growing and of course i've not talked about at all um, the separate kind of um, catastrophes, um, the uh, slow burning ones like um, climate change and causing mass extinctions and all that, which again are aggravated by the fact that there are more human beings on the world, each more demanding of energy and resources. Um, and these are, of course, uh, a, a separate issue which are now getting higher on the political agenda. I must say, if I was in your shoes looking at this stuff every day, I'd be a real pessimist. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I am a pessimist, um, uh, but um, uh, what I am pessimistic about is the ability of our um, um, nations and their political leaders and governments to actually address these questions optimally. I think there is this very big gap between the way things could be with optimal planning and the way they actually are given the uh, muddle and uh, incompetence, uh, which is manifested in, in all governments. Uh, I, I do, do worry about this. Have you, what, have you got any views on, on these recent, recent political shenanigans, the woke debate? I think it's, it's perhaps a reflection of how comfortable our lives still are that people do worry about these um, uh, th these matters, we have this issue about whether you should um, uh, dename uh, buildings, take down statues and all this sort of thing, and uh, control speech that may offend someone. 
uh, I think uh, uh, most uh, sensible people and certainly um, at least 90% of the faculty in Cambridge uh, take a fairly robust view. Uh, they decided in a very strong vote that uh, although we had a, uh, an obligation to um, tolerate other opinions, uh, we did not have an obligation to respect other opinions. And I think that is the, the right thing for a university to do, to encourage robust debate, um, but uh, not expect that we should uh, uh, keep everyone comfortable. These are trivial concerns in your view. It's potentially a, a, serious, a, a serious issue. And um, uh, I, I think um, one, one worries about uh, the the way in which uh, some people expressing uh, what would seem quite widely had opinions you know, like JK Rowling etc um, are being attacked. I think um, uh, you as a journalist must be more concerned about this but I think there has been um, uh, an excessive tendency to um, uh, um, worry about making people feel uncomfortable. Lord Rees thank you very much indeed. But one thing we didn't say anything about was space, which is my other main interest, of course. Well, what is happening in space? <laughs> yes. Um, I think um, space um, is, of course, part of our lives, though we don't realise it. We depend every day on uh, sat-nav uh, communications, environmental monitoring and all that from satellites orbiting the Earth. But, of course, what people ask about um, is what's the role of human beings in space? And uh, uh, my line there is that um, the case for sending humans was never very strong, except for uh, political uh, purposes like in the Apollo program, but it's getting weaker all the time as robots and miniaturization get better. And so I think um, all the valuable uses of space, including even assembling large structures um, in zero G um, and trying to explore the surface of Mars um, can be done by robots. And I would therefore, um, as a taxpayer, if, if I was in America, not support the human spaceflight program of NASA because it's very, very expensive. And that's because NASA is very risk averse. They launched people into space in the shuttle. And you may remember there were two crashes of the shuttle in 135 launches. And each of those was traumatic because they presented space travel as something normal, you know, like tourism. And of course, it should be presented as something which is um, not a very much use, but is a sport, a very dangerous sport for pioneers. And my view, if I was an American in particular, is that uh, human spaceflight should be left to a uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and their projects, because they are not using public money and they are also able, therefore, to uh, um, cut costs and take just the kind of people prepared to accept high risks or even just one-way tickets to Mars. And Elon Musk himself has said that uh, he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. And I think he's about 50 years old now, so 40 years from now he might do this. So uh, my, my view is that um, human spaceflight is becoming less and less um, um, helpful and useful because robots are getting better, but it remains much, much, much more expensive to send and sustain humans in space than to send uh, uh, robots. 
So it should be left to um, private enterprise and private sponsorship and um, pioneers who we would cheer on uh, because they're um, doing something very dangerous and risky. So um, I rather hope there will be a few people living on Mars at the end of the century, but I think it's a dangerous delusion to think that we will ever have um, large communities on Mars. And uh, uh, I know there's some people, including Elon Musk himself and my late colleague Stephen Hawking, who felt that uh, there should be mass migration um, to Mars to escape the problems of the Earth. Uh, but that is, I think, um, uh, very misleading because um, uh, living on Mars is far less comfortable than living at the top of Everest, at the South Pole or in the ocean bed. And uh, uh, dealing with climate change on Earth, which is, of course, a big challenge, is a doddle compared to making Mars habitable and terraforming Mars. Uh, so it's a dangerous delusion to think that there'll be mass emigration. Although, um, as an astronomer, I hope that there will be uh, a few crazy people who do go to Mars. And the reason I say that is that um, uh, astronomers are aware that not only are we the um, descendants of a long-term uh, evolutionary process, four billion years of Darwinian evolution, but the timeline ahead is even longer. The sun's less than halfway through its life. So we are not, as most people think, this sort of top of the evolutionary tree the end of a system, we're not even the halfway stage. And so we think that there could be a, a lot of future development, maybe fresh and blood creatures, maybe electronic creatures who are sort of post-humans and they will spread uh, far beyond the earth because um, uh, uh, if you're electronic, you may not need an atmosphere, you may prefer to be in space. And if you're an immortal, you don't mind a long voyage. So there's a future, which of course science fiction writers have familiarize us with, uh, which is um, something uh, which we just can't conceive. We can't conceive the brain power of these entities, etc. But it's a very exciting potential development. Um, and um, uh, I think one point, and uh, this was the theme of my most recent book, which is that even in this perspective of a concertina timeline ex extending billions of years into the past, and also billions of years into the future, this century is special. It's the first when we have the future of the planet in its hands because humans have the technology to either um, produce a, an Earth uh, which is habitable um, by everyone, or if they screw up badly, to uh, um, produce a map major setback which forecloses all these uh, immense options spreading millions even billions of years into the future. What do you imagine future man will so, be like? I, I, um, I have no idea because of course one thing which is going to be possible is um, uh, redesigning humans um, um, by, by um, um, uh, modifying the human genome and uh, producing uh, genomes which are different. Um, but I think the big question is, if we think very far ahead, uh, will the dominant intelligences uh, be uh, flesh and blood? Or could it be that the um, uh, um, electronic entities will, will take over? Because obviously there are limits to the uh, capacity of the kind of um, hardware we've got in our heads. Um, 
and uh, maybe the machines, which can already obviously um, surpass humans in many respects, may take over. Uh, we don't know how that will happen. But I think the other point is that um, this future evolution will happen not on the timescale of Darwinian evolution, which um, um, operates on a very slow uh, timescale, taking hundreds of thousands of years to modify humans. We haven't changed very much in, the, in that time. But this will happen on what I would call the timescale of secular intelligent design, just like technology, and technology can change in, in a century or two. And so uh, one prediction I make in my book is that 500 years from now, um, humans will be very different uh, because of uh, this sort of thing. And um, uh, this has some important consequences because whereas we can um, appreciate um, the art and the writings of people who wrote two or 3,000 years ago, classical literature and buildings, etc., cetera, um, because human nature wasn't very different then, we've got no guarantee that a few hundred years from now, the dominant intelligences will have anything other than some sort of algorithmic understanding of us and how we behaved. Their nature will not be human nature as we understand it now. And this is a, a big, a big change. And this is um, um, something which is, um, uh, I think, something we would try to slow down on Earth. We'd like to keep Earth changing fast and, and, and let these guys out in space um, develop these techniques. Um, but this is the kind of thing which could happen. And of course, when I've talked about this, the reaction I get depends on whether people think that these entities are conscious. Um, uh, if they are um, uh, conscious and self-aware and have feelings, etc. Uh, then some people might say, well, just like uh, uh, we're glad that uh, we have superseded um, uh, uh, apes as the dominant species, so we should be glad. But on the other hand, um, it's possible that um, uh, these entities will have um, uh, huge capabilities, but zero comprehension in the sense of having no self-awareness, no consciousness. And so if the um, if the universe becomes dominated by entities that can't appreciate its wonder and mystery and have no inner life, then we would not think that's an admirable uh, scenario for the far future. So the question, uh, which is um, um, discussed by academic philosophers about whether um, machines can be conscious, uh, may become an issue of crucial practical ethics if we get to the stage when we have uh, um, artificial intelligences which can reproduce many human um, types of behavior, but which uh, we can't tell are, are zombies or have consciousness. I'm rather glad That's we'll both be issue. dead by then, aren't you? Well, uh, I, I, I am, well, out of curiosity, I'd like to be alive, but uh, clearly this will all be long before we're all dead. Um, but uh, there are people, of course, who uh, aren't happy about that, um, Ray Kurzweil, who's the um, uh, the sort of um, uh, high priest of these crazy futurology ideas, um, he's one of these people who wants to be uh, uh, be frozen when he dies, um, and, uh, uh, and and then uh, resurrected um, when it's possible to download his brain and all that. Um, and there's a company in Arizona which will freeze your body in liquid nitrogen, 
um, and allegedly they say they'll revive you. Um, this is pretty crazy, um, but uh, that's what, what he wants to do. And um, uh, indeed, um, three of uh, my uh, academic colleagues in this country have paid for, um, for this. They pay in advance um, and they have some, something around their neck so that if they die, they're immediately grabbed and frozen in liquid nitrogen. And two have paid for this. One's taken the cut price of just having his head frozen. Um, and I'm glad to say they're all from Oxford and not from my university, uh, because I tell them I'd rather end my days in an English churchyard than in a California refrigerator. <laughs> people, but some people are serious about they're this. They're clearly all overpaid. <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I guess so, yes. <laughs> Martin, thank you very much indeed. Look after yourself. 